This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, the numbers of enrolled Americans continue to climb. The administration announced that over 8 million Americans have signed up for coverage of their insurance exchanges. And there's another estimate, Mark, that about 8 million Americans signed up for coverage with private insurers. And of these enrollees, it's believed that about 5.5 million were previously uninsured. A lot of new customers. Uh, But there were millions of Americans who are now covered as well under the expanded Medicaid program. In 25 states that chose to expand it, but in other states there are still millions of low-income Americans who are locked out, at least for now. However, in states like Virginia and Florida, there are louder drumbeats touting the merits of expanded coverage for those living near poverty. It's becoming a more consistent theme in more red states who refused to consider the Medicare expansion, largely on political grounds. Well, as our listeners might remember, Mark, we've been predicting that, among others, the healthcare industry professionals in these states would be exerting pressure on the politicians to tap into the billions of health care dollars that are available to treat this uncovered population. That's real money, and it's being left on the table by those states that refuse to expand Medicaid. On another note, Margaret, we're marking uh, something of a milestone this year. It was 30 years ago this month that a press conference was held announcing the virus that was believed to be causing this new epidemic, AIDS. 35.1 million people are living worldwide with HIV, AIDS. 1.2 million died from AIDS-related illness in 2012. We're far from a cure on this epidemic. There's a powerful article in Time magazine featuring Dr. Robert Gallo, who figured so prominently in the discovery of the virus and the initiation of treatment back in 1984. And, you know, he remains skeptical 30 years later that we'll zero in on a cure anytime soon. And it remains the leading cause of infectious disease deaths around the world. HIV-positive folks are living longer with the advancement of better drugs, Margaret. But the rate of new infections continues to pose a great global health challenge. Prevention and testing are the best weapons at the moment and will continue to be so. And the best hope, according to Dr. Gallo, remains a workable vaccine, but we are nowhere there yet. The scourge has a great impact on the economically challenged in greater numbers and in minority populations as well. And minority populations are a population that our guest today is very focused on. Dr. Chilese Conde price is a cardiologist at UPenn. She's developed a digital platform to assist African Americans in tackling their higher rates of cardiovascular disease and beginning to reduce their risk. We also have a visit from managing editor of factcheck.org, Laurie Robertson. She's breaking down some of the rumors about enrollment numbers on the insurance exchanges. Remember, no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to CHC Radio. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at CHC Radio or find us on Facebook or Twitter because we'd love to hear from you. And we'll get to our interview with Dr. Price in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. Mariano here with these healthcare headlines. Another high-ranking health official is leaving his post at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid. CMS Principal Deputy Administrator Jonathan Bloom is stepping down after five years. Under Bloom's leadership, CMS moved ahead with programs creating accountable care organizations and revisiting Medicare Advantage to promote competitive bidding. And recently, Bloom helped oversee the unprecedented release of detailed Medicare payment data for 880,000 physicians. Meanwhile, in other CMS news, officials are looking to smaller vendors to take over the healthcare.gov website once the one-year contract is up with the original vendor Accenture. 
They're specifically looking to create an RFP for smaller vendors who are more highly specialized in web portal development and management. Accenture made $7.1 billion in 2013 alone. The latest tally of the numbers of new enrollees on insurance exchanges across the nation created under the Affordable Care Act, 8 million and counting. Add to that the roughly 8 million Americans who sought insurance in private marketplaces. That's a significant number of Americans who've gained coverage, although only a percentage of those were previously uninsured. Just say no to Mox Duo. A key government panel voted unanimously against approval of a powerful opioid prescription painkiller intended to provide faster relief with fewer side effects. The Food and Drug Administration voted 14 to 0 against recommending the agency approve Mox Duo, the first drug to combine morphine and oxycodone in one capsule. Prescription drug overdoses are responsible for thousands of deaths per year and are proving a gateway to an uptick in heroin abuse. Addiction experts feared Mox Duo would simply add flame to that fire with its acute potency. I'm Ariano O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with Dr. Chalashi Nkande Price, a cardiologist in Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs Clinical Scholar. Dr. Price is a research fellow at the Social Media Lab at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. She's also a senior fellow at Penn's Leonard Davis Institute for Health Economics and is a creator of the digital health project Change My Steps, a program utilizing gamification and social media to improve heart health among African-American women. Dr. Price earned her medical degree from the University College in London and then worked for the National Health Services in England for three years before continuing her training in the U.S. She was chief resident at Drexel University and served her cardiology fellowship at Yale School of Medicine. Dr. Price, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, April is National Minority Health Month and obviously an area that you are quite passionate about. And uh, you see the negative effects of health disparities and disproportionately higher rates of cardiovascular disease uh, in early death amongst African-American women. And little success seems to be borne out by the effort. So help our listeners understand the nature of cardiovascular health disparity and paint a picture for us, if you will, about the successes and that we've had and also the road that we have to travel. Um, important to realize that cardiovascular disease in the U.S., is actually a success story. Over the past 30 years, there have been dramatic declines in mortality and morbidity from the cardiovascular diseases when you look at the population as a whole. But when you break it down by gender and race groups, you see that it really isn't a success for all patient groups. And it's here that I'm really emphasizing that when you look at black patients as a whole, we're not making those dramatic declines. And we really find that in cardiovascular disease, when it comes to black patients, especially black women, there is a higher prevalence of cardiovascular risk factors. I'm talking about smoking, diabetes, physical inactivity, and healthy diet. Within black patients or within black females and black males, you know, the American Heart Association uh, publishes a statistical update every year, and it says it's as if, it, you know, copying, pasting the same paragraph, mm -hmm. but it's not. Mm -hmm. It's just that this isn't new information. So we have a lot of work out there 
describing trends. And this is really where I started to place a little bit of my interest and a little bit of my work, thinking about how can we be creative about the response to this long-standing fact? Mm -hmm. How can we think outside of the healthcare system? And it's in that kind of thought that I decided to do some community-based work and really think about agencies surrounding the hospital four walls that could maybe move the needle on this risk factors issue. Mm -hmm. So that's where I think the creative responses stand. Well, Dr. Price, as a research fellow at the Social Media Lab at the Center for Healthcare Innovation at Penn, you've really been able to take your own creativity and your interest in using social media and mobile technologies uh, as a strategy, an innovative strategy to promote better health practices among minority populations. And I want to talk about one of them that you've been gaining quite a bit of attention for, and that's the digital project you've developed called Change My Steps, which seeks to engage black women in the dialogue about finding solutions that work. I think I've heard that you conceived of this project (laughs) while sitting in a hair salon where so much social interaction and bonding occurs. So tell us the story of the genesis of the program, the bright idea or the genesis, who you're reaching with it, and maybe a little bit about the kind of technology and social media platforms that you're enlisting. What I was really looking for was really trying to get to the fabric of what is it about African-American women and cardiovascular disease? What are the reasons for these adverse risk factors? I wanted to think about where am I going to get the truth? Where am I going to be able to recruit or, or rather have the opportunity to talk with a demographically diverse sample of African-American women. I attended a seminar at the University of Pennsylvania called The Politics of Black Hair, and I heard Melissa uh, Harris-Perry speak there, and I also heard Dr. Gill speak there, too. Dr. Gill has done a lot of work on the sociology of the American beauty shop, and it really talked about the hair salon as like a central place of social activation in the African-American community, a place where ideas are naturally exchanged, where African-American women gather and naturally share secrets and solve problems. Um, Concurrent with that experience, I remember listening to uh, Regina Benjamin, who was the Surgeon General at the time on uh, NPR, and she said something really wonderful about the impact of the obesity epidemic in African-American women. And she, I think it was a quote where she said, we have to go to where the people are at. You know, health takes place not just in healthcare systems, but also in people's homes, in people's churches, where people gather. And it's with those two kind of experiences that I'm sitting in the hair salon myself having my own hair done, and I'm hearing these conversations of health and healthcare. I'm hearing these conversations of barriers and access. I'm also hearing conversations of solutions, and I put those three things together, and I thought, this is where the truth is, that this is a place where naturally black women gather. This is where I'm really going to get the truth behind the response, and that's where the genesis of the program came from, and that's where I made the decision that I would, as a cardiologist, go outside the walls of the hospital and seek this real-world sample. And so I thought, at first, I will break it down to Philadelphia. And we decided that we would try and gain the concept of local density and select a few hair salons to identify areas in Philadelphia that were high, middle, and low income. 
and then actually going and ground-truthing those zip codes. And by ground-truthing, I mean driving around in a car and looking for hair salons and actually then going and actually cold-calling. And I mean actually going in to these environments and telling them about my interest and my work and whether it would be possible to interview people. I managed to partner with three hair salons and uh, spent a lot of time before the Change My Steps project actually got going spending time within these communities. You can't just walk into a community and start asking questions. There really had to be some agency from the hair salon owners and stylists themselves and also the clients because this is a tender environment and really just getting to know folks and uh, getting to know um, the influencers. And what I mean by the influencers are those people who are directing conversations, not just about health, but about uh, commerce and about finances and about relationships. The hair salon is a marketplace, a marketplace where I was selling healthcare, but maybe somebody else was selling hair lotion and somebody else was selling wisdom about how to raise one's kids. It's a marketplace of ideas. And the original study design was to go and ask African-American women across the social strata, trying to get a real-world sample and ask them about these cardiovascular risk factors. Ask them what it would take to change your steps. What's that one thing that it would take for you to stop smoking? What's that one thing that it would take for you to improve your physical activity? What are the barriers? What are the solutions? But actually, the women pushed back a little and said, you know, Dr. Chalesh, you can come in here and ask us all these questions, but what are you going to do about it? Where they said, you know, we want to make it easier. Like any place where people are waiting, they're poring over these digital devices, whether it's cell phones or tablets. And it's really together that we created how can we use something, a piece of technology that we're already all using to create more healthy behaviors. And that's where the second project, the Change My Steps Walking Challenge, was developed, where Social support was a huge aspect of what allowed people to live healthy lives. And by social support, I mean if somebody else is eating healthy or if somebody else is working out at the gym with you, then you're more likely to do it yourself. So we got the women to go into groups of their own social networks. So they picked the networks. We got them to download digital pedometers onto their smartphones. And then we gamified the experience by using the Internet and Twitter and me and my research assistants emailing them lots to encourage (laughs) them to try and walk 10,000 steps a day. We used cell phones and digital apps to try to really improve on their physical activity based on the barriers uh, that they had told me in the interviews. Uh, those conversations, as you just said, you know, were uh, have started to also change from the hair salon also to the virtual salon, if you will. And we're, <laughs> we're sort of at this intersection of technology and patient engagement. Yep. And uh, that that is an exciting place to do it. And talk to us a little more about what you've learned. Uh, I think it's commonplace for people to think that young people are more tech savvy. But tell us about your research about older participants in the study. How does this project blossom in the work that you're doing at the social media lab at UPenn Medical School as well? Sure. So our experience is that there was really a range of tech savviness, you know, not just constrained to the younger uh, women, but some of the older women actually adopted the technology and did great. And some of them struggled a great deal, either due to not not having smartphones available, maybe not having data packages available on their smartphones. You know, we actually know from empirical data, the Pew Internet Life and Research Project has looked at older 
adults and has looked at their internet use and has shown that uh, internet use amongst older adults is actually on the increase. And, uh, you know, once older adults do get engaged in internet use, they tend to use the internet on a daily basis. The use of smartphones, which is really what Change My Steps Walking Challenge was based on in uh, older adults, they tend to use both smartphones and tablets and e-readers in equal proportions rather than in the younger groups who all have a smartphone in their hands. But one thing that I found especially interesting was to not assume that older adults are not engaged. Mm -hmm. um, those older adults that are engaged tend to be the healthy ones. And you could say, was there a selection in my study where it was the healthy and engaged? The Pew data does show that those older adults that have disabilities or health conditions are less likely to either have internet connectivity, smartphones, or access to digital applications. So you asked me a question about scaling in that I was fortunate to capture um, older ladies who did a great job uh, in the most part. But when we're really scaling into the healthcare setting, it's really important to understand the empirical data across mm -hmm. nationally representative samples of older adults that we are going to face challenges and think about that before we design studies that they will be the target population. You know, it's that concept of if we build it, will they come? Mm -hmm. Don't just build an app. Ask people what they need. Ask them what's appropriate to, uh, for them and then build the project, which is really how Change My Steps Walking mm -hmm. Challenge was designed. Um, I found a similar experience that we've had in the Social Media and Health Innovation Lab. Raina Merchant, who leads that, uh, lab ran a project called the My Heart Map Challenge that they were trying to map AEDs, automatic external defibrillators across the city of Philadelphia where they had um, digital applications, uh, used uh, geography to identify them and they ran a contest and the winners of that contest were in the older age group. Mm. So you can't really mm -hmm. uh, assume that, this, that smartphones and digital apps are really just a thing for younger folks. I always go back to the point that if we want to understand the gaps and serve a certain population or reach a certain population, you have to start with that before piece. We're speaking today with Dr. Chalesi Ankande Price, cardiologist and Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs clinical scholar. Dr. Price is a research fellow at the Social Media Lab at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine and the creator of the digital health project Change My Steps. So, Dr. Price, I want to pull the thread on geography uh, a little bit. You recently participated in a TEDMED Great Challenges webinar that's on the way population health can be identified by something as simple, perhaps, as zip codes and how that data can be uh, used to create very targeted solutions to health disparities. From that experience and from collaborations, I'm sure you've had, uh, how do we move the needle using zip code-based data to both identify and then address these barriers to better health? And maybe you could share with our listeners some of the programs discussed during that TEDMED Great Challenges webinar. That, that might show some promise in this area. There were two themes, I'd say, that were predominant. Number one is that your zip code is more than a string of digits. It's really a um, analogy for your community, those things that you have access to that um, are creating health opportunities for you. And, you know, the second thing that really came across that was really a lot of what um, Dr. Gail Christopher emphasized a number of times across the webinar was something that's really difficult to measure, which is 
really having that conversation about asking, are all populations worth the interventions? I mean, I was really challenged by her comments on the webinar, and it really got me thinking afterwards that we can do a lot of things, we can ask a lot of questions, we can design creative challenges, but there's something really tough that is a fabric behind this, uh, the fabric of there has been a lot of inequality here in the United States. I think she used the term a heart change, where people say that the most vulnerable populations are worth the interventions. And so let's use a specific example. That means that when we're designing um, mobile applications and digital technologies targeted at the least privileged populations, we need to think about, number one, going and asking them what they want, number two, representing them on every level, then testing them specifically within these populations and defining success across these various subgroups. It is about giving vulnerable populations worth in every step of the conversation. Mm -hmm. Some of the projects, that, um, and the main project that we talked about was the concept of promise zones developed by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. And, and the promise zone being one of those areas where the government has really defined that it's going to create opportunity across agencies to improve um, health, education, and uh, generally folks' communities and the concept of promise zones is to say, well, can we create promise through opportunity and can opportunity then translate into better outcomes? You know, I want to get your uh, thoughts, Dr. Price, not only about across subgroups or across agencies, but really across the pond, because you were raised in England you, where you did your early medical training and you were steeped in the national health care system. Uh, where access is not the issue that we faced here in the United States. So share with our listeners how health metrics differ between the two countries when it comes to access and outcomes. There are differences in health metrics. And yes, the national health system, as you've said, there's universal access to health care for all. And, uh, but still, uh, when you look at national data in the United Kingdom, there are disparities across social class and economic lines, which is to be expected. One thing that you find living in the United Kingdom, working within the National Health Service, is that there really is, by having this uh, single system, greater integration with the health care and the social care of um, patients that interact with the healthcare system. And it's just something that when I first came to the United States, I noticed was present but fragmented, less universal. And is actually, if I'm really honest with you, one of the reasons I stayed in the United States, because I felt like this could be better. I've seen it done better. And I'll give you an example um, just from my, you know, from my own specialty in cardiology. Uh, the recent controversy with the cardiovascular risk calculator. And what I mean by that is recently new guidelines produced for the definition of cardiovascular risk. The U.S. calculators use standard metrics that we know for risk factors, which were you know, a patient's age and their cholesterol and their gender and their race. But the Joint British Cardiovascular Society recently released their calculator. And one of the things within that calculator is you can press a button where you define what your house looks like. That's within the risk calculator. And the reason why that's extremely powerful is it goes back to my point about where you live mm -hmm. and your community defines your health. That's not in the U.S. calculator. The U.K. gets that. 
And it's it's an icon that's, you know, does your house look really nice or is it in a really bad area? And I, I felt like that really crystallized that idea that social care and health care are very tightly integrated. And the point being there is it's something I've often said is that it takes everybody. Mm-hmm. It takes the doctors, it takes the healthcare system, it takes government, it takes community leaders. Uh, the last thing I'll say is about the, you know, the medical records in the United Kingdom, which is my experience working in the NHS. When I was there, you could see that having a single healthcare system, you can imagine that healthcare records are more readily available mm-hmm. across hospitals. It's easier for healthcare professionals and people in the community to communicate. But recently, the United Kingdom has decided to make those healthcare records available for research. Information we already have in the medical record, we can understand the predictors of uh, disease. And we're not there yet in the United States. I'm giving you glints to my vision of how we can think about what are the key determinants of poor outcomes. I think the United Kingdom is ahead of the game. We've been speaking today with Dr. Chalesi on Condé Price, cardiologist and Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs clinical scholar. Dr. Price is a research fellow at the Social Media Lab at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine, and you can learn more about her work by going to www.changemysteps.com. Dr. Price, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much. At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? It's well known by now that President Obama's claim that if you like your health care plan, you can keep your health care plan wasn't true. And we've seen many ads in 2014 saying that millions have lost their health insurance. But how many millions of insured Americans had their plans canceled, and how does that compare with the millions of uninsured Americans who have gained coverage under the law? There's evidence that far more have gained coverage than had their policies canceled. Those who had policies canceled were on the individual market. Insurance companies said their current plans didn't meet the law's standards and in most cases offered them an alternative. Many of these individuals were likely eligible for federal subsidies if they bought plans on the exchanges instead. How many had their policies canceled? Researchers from the Urban Institute say roughly 2.6 million people based on a nationwide poll. How many have gained insurance? One survey conducted by the Urban Institute says 5.4 million of the previously uninsured gained coverage between September and the beginning of March. Another estimate from the nonprofit Rand Corporation said 9.3 million adults had gained coverage as of mid-March. The Obama administration has said that 8 million signed up for insurance on the exchanges, but that total would include both the previously uninsured and those who already had coverage. It also doesn't include new enrollees in Medicaid. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, 
Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Outgoing New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg is leaving his post with another public health feather in his cap. Launched in May of 2013, the City Bike Bike Sharing Program has in a few short months reached a milestone. In the first five months since the program launched, City Bike users have logged over 10 million miles in over 5 million rides, far outstripping similar programs in other cities throughout the United States. The program funded by Citibank allows subscribers to join either on an annual fee of $95 or for daily or weekly rates at a far reduced price. They're reaching an average daily ridership of 35,000. 10 million miles of pedal power requires significant exercise output. The estimated number of calories burned since the program began in May 403 million. Since taking office, Mayor Bloomberg has launched the first city-wide smoking ban in buildings and launched the first-in-the-nation ban on trans fat in restaurants. Both programs have had a dramatic impact on the health of the population, reducing exposure to secondhand smoke and dangerous food additives. The bike sharing program has been so successful the city has plans to scale the program up to all five boroughs, adding hundreds of miles of bike trails and thousands of bikes to newly developed bike stations. And another bonus, the program will, over time, have an impact on the CO2 emissions from cabs and cars. Chicago and Washington, D.C. have similar programs and have plans to scale up their efforts as well an affordable bike-sharing program that has encouraged hundreds of thousands of city dwellers and visitors to exercise their way to their destination, enhancing their health in the process. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center. 